Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, fitness, prevention, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. As many of you probably know, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, I am a fan of low carb. Uh, I did. I talked a little bit about a keto-ish type of a diet in my fat burning lecture. And through all that, the last year or so, I discovered something called the carnivore diet, which is what it sounds like. It's uh, all animal meat, animal organs type of a diet with no fruits, no vegetables, no grains, no sugars. As radical as that seems, when I first heard about it, I thought the same thing. But the more I've learned about it, the more I believe it's really a healthy way to eat. And I have started recommending that to uh, more and more patients. I will invite you just to keep an open mind as you listen to this episode. And we definitely have an expert uh, uh, in this topic on the show. And so my guest today is Dr. Sean Baker. So he is a physician, uh, uh, graduated from Texas Tech Health Science Center. Um, he wanted to be, went on to be an orthopedic surgeon, uh, graduating residency from the University of Texas. He worked overseas as a combat trauma surgeon. He was the chief of orthopedics in the United States Air Force, a uh, multi-sport athlete. Uh, he's been on multiple podcasts, including Joe Rogan and others. And so I'm super stoked that he's here today with me. Uh, he's also effectively known, at least on the internet, as the Carnivore King. So uh, Dr. Baker, welcome to the show. Hey, Dennis. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to reach your audience. All right. So I always like just kind of hearing uh, your story. I mean, how did you, you know, you're, you're a working orthopedic surgeon and then now you're known as the carnivore king. And so uh, kind of tell us just, just how you got here to, to writing a book uh, called, you know, about the carnivore diet. Yeah, I think like many physicians, we don't, you know, we've been woefully inadequately trained on the, the impact of nutrition on health, at least most of us. And you don't really think about it until you kind of, you know, I got, I guess, mid forties, early to mid forties. And I noticed that uh, my health, my personal health was not where I wanted it to be, despite just aggressive training. I mean, training at the highest levels as an athlete. I mean, you know, having, I had literally just won a world championship in the sport of Highland games, which is, you know, these big guys wearing kilts, throwing, you know, cavers, which look like telephone poles and shot putting. And I, you know, so I was a big, strong guy training very hard, you know, all while doing surgery, which was, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a balancing act. But um, so I, I go through this sort of nutritional sort of self-education with self-experimentation over a period of, I bet it was about six years of just kind of trying progressively, you know, different thoughts, reading different books, looking at different research, you know, trying out these different diets. And I, you know, I, I ended up getting low carb about two or three years in and then kind of went from a paleo, low carb, and then eventually to a ketogenic diet. Uh, and spent about two and a half, three years there. And then got exposed to these people, these crazy, wacky people doing all meat diets. And I thought the same thing. Oh, this sounds kind of interesting, if not crazy. And I, and I you know, I kind of open-mindedly, because I had already kind of read enough about nutrition to, to realize that it's not particularly well-done science. And in some, it's just the, the inherent limitations in doing human nutrition studies. We just can't you can't do studies and control it like you would, like you're supposed to in a scientific experiment, and then kill everybody at the end and cut them open and see what happened. I mean, that's just not what you can do with humans, uh, at least not ethically. So we have these, we have this very uh, sort of poor quality science being put forth as somewhat definitive when I mean, it clearly is not. And so I was open-minded enough to do that. And then, um, you know, I said, well, you know, this sounds interesting. I'm going to try it for a period of time. And I did, you know, a couple of days, I, you know, I basically have a carnivore meal, eggs and bacon, steak and eggs for breakfast, did that all day long and felt, you know, I felt pretty good. And then I'd said, well, I'm going to try it for three days now. And then four days. And I started looking back as an athlete looking for competitive advantages, you know, and I've always been kind of a guy who's, I mean, I've, I've always been a drug free athlete, never took steroids, even, even despite, you know, heavy weightlifting and stuff like that and competing in strongman and powerlifting and, you know, top level rugby and so on and so forth. 
But I, I looked at uh, Vince Garanda's diet of steak and eggs. You know, it was basically steak and eggs. It was four days in a row of that and one day of a carbohydrate refeed. So I started doing that. Uh, and then I realized, you know, I just felt better on the steak and egg days. You know, the carbohydrate refeed days, I, I just noted a lot of GI discomfort and inflammation. And I just didn't, and energy level was not as good. So I got the courage to try it for longer and went one week, two weeks. And then finally, uh, in 2016, I went for a whole month of uh, doing nothing but, you know, animal-based food. It was basically meat, but I mean, I, you know, I think I had some eggs in there a little bit to some degree and really felt just tremendous. I mean, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And because 30 day was over, I said, well, I'm going to go back to my more sort of balanced diet, fruits and vegetables, you know, in, in low carb, ketogenic. And I just didn't feel as good. I mean, the, the, the aches and pains that had gone away, and this is at age 50 at this point, came back very quickly within a day. And I said, well, this is not uh, something that uh, I, I, I like experiencing. I prefer to feel good all the time. And so I ended up just kind of persisting in the diet. Um, six months in, I got 100 people to try it uh, online. We had a little, we did a little kind of informal study where we, we got 100 people that were willing to do it and record their data. Uh, we did this called N equals many because everybody's saying, well, it's just N equals one. It doesn't count. It doesn't matter. I said, well, let's get a bunch of people and call it N equals many. And 100 people did it for, for 90 days. And, you know, the average person lost something like 13 kilos, which is about 30 pounds and eight centimeters off their waist. And every subjective measure, again, we didn't have any money. So it was all basically a lot of subjective stuff, but everything got better for those people. Their heart rate went down. We tracked things like bowel movements and you know, erections in men and just whatever people were willing to put down there. And it was across the board a success. And so this got the attention of, uh, I guess, Joe Rogan. And then I got on his podcast uh, and then, you know, kind of, it just kind of extra, you know, just kind of blew up from there. You know, I mean, you get that exposure and half the, well, I wouldn't say half, I'd say 90% of the people think you're an absolute wacko, crazy person. 10% think, think, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something there. And then 1% of the people try it. And, you know, it, you know, fast forward now, four more years later, and now we've had tens, if not hundreds of people, thousands of people try it. And by and large, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of them are noticing significant improvements in health. And we've had some people with just amazing, literally, you know, just sort of, you know, blow the doors off transformations and health recoveries, you know, things like, you know, autoimmune diseases, you know, people with, you know, lifelong or nearly lifelong or decades long disease, depression, you know, just get better. I mean, they, they return to life, which to me is just truly fascinating. I think there's, it deserves serious inquiry and, and scientific study. And that's, that's one of the things I'm trying to do, as you may be aware. Sure. So how long have you been doing carnivore now? So uh, I am about to hit four years. I am, oh, wow. I'm a few weeks away from four years. Wow. And so what's been the, the biggest improvement, I guess, for, for your health? I wasn't like significantly sick going into this, but I mean, I think for what I saw, you know, a ketogenic diet seemed to help with a number of things. You know, the, the thing that really shocked me about a ketogenic diet, it was kind of an epiphany moment, was this hunger appetite suppression. I was like, wow, I'm not even hungry. And prior to that, I was, you know, man, if, you, if I could go two, three hours without eating, I was, it was pretty tough. I mean, because I was a big guy, I mean, I was consuming a lot of calories, you know, and I still consume quite a bit of calories, but I mean, it was just, I was always wanting to eat something. And, you know, that was a shock. But what I saw was, Number one, digestion. I mean, it, it suddenly became, I didn't even realize I was digesting things, you know, and I, I, I use this analogy, you know, like I said, if, if you and I were to start breathing and we had lung ch chest pain or whatever, we would clearly say, hey, that's not right. There's something wrong there. Or if you go and you, you know, you walk up and down the stairs and your knees start hurting, you know, there's a problem, right? That's mm -hmm. clear. Uh, however, when we eat and then we have, you know, stomach pain, discomfort, bloating, gas, distension, we think, well, that's just normal digestion, you know, because I mean, we're so used to it. I mean, this right. is just what it is. But what I saw was a profound absence of any of that. I mean, it was to where you didn't even know you, know you had eaten anything. It's like there's no rumbling, no, no distension, no bloating, no, basically no gas, which I thought was just curious. Um, but I, you think about it, I mean, is, what, does it make sense that we have an organ system or, you know, a, a, you know, a, a bodily system that, that causes us dis discomfort? And why would that be? It doesn't make sense. So my, my sort of thought on that is either you are eating the wrong food or there's something primarily wrong with that organ system. You know, there's something wrong with your digestive tract or the food you're eating is just the wrong, the wrong fuel for you. And so 
Uh, but the other thing is, you know, I had, as an orthopedic surgeon, I had this chronic quadriceps tendonitis in my right quadriceps. I remember I had, I had it, I think, I think I, I remember I was squatting 500 pounds one time and I felt a little bit of a tear. I thought I had like a partial quad tear, quad tendon tear. You know, my, my, I had my partner check me out. He's like, no, we, well, it seems to be intact, but it bothered me. And it bothered me for, you know, 10 years. And every time I worked out or ran or sprinted, it would be sore for a day or two afterwards. Within probably two months of doing the diet, the pain completely went away and it has never come back, which I thought was something, you know, I suffered with this for 10 years, you know, and knowing all the tricks that you can do as an orthopedic surgeon to help with tendinopathy, mm -hmm. I couldn't get it better, but carnivore diet. And I was like, wow, two months mm -hmm. later, I'm like, it's gone. And, 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 you know, the fact that it stayed gone for now four years is really neat. Uh, athletic performance was another thing. I mean, I went, uh, I'll just, you know, just from a number standpoint, I remember I was trying to deadlift 405 pounds and my goal was to hit it for 20 or 20 times wow and i was like 45 i was trying to do that and i never could do it i mean i would get to 15 16 and that was it i mean no matter how hard i tried i stopped i went on a carnivore diet the second week i was deadlifting i hit 20 reps it was like it was just like my my strength just went up like significantly and i was just like this is shocking i wasn't and i was older and i wasn't changing anything training wise it was still the same trying to training schedule and regimen but just a, the, the proper high quality protein and nutrition and absence of probably things that were, you know, detracting from that uh, mm -hmm. led for better performance. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming you monitor, um, you know, your blood and, and lipids, which, you know, we're going to talk about here in a second, but I mean, all your blood markers, good inflammatory markers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not as like, I'm not as much of a biohacker where I have to, you know, analyze 7,000 things and check on them, check on tech them monthly. I do periodically. I mean, I, I recently checked my LFTs. All of them were, you know, low or low normal. Uh, you know, everything's fine. My kidney function completely fine. Although I do have to say that, and this is something that many physicians don't realize, you know, when you're on a high protein diet or you have a lot of lean muscle mass or you work out hard and you're breaking down and turning over a lot of muscle mass, that'll artificially elevate your creatinine and GFR is calculated based on creatinine. You know, it doesn't matter. That's why the African-American score is always 10 points higher, 13% higher, because there's assumption that they have X amount more muscle mass. And so uh, what, I, what I do is when I assess my, uh, my GFR, you know, and it's, again, it's an estimate. You're not measuring it directly unless you want. There, there are direct measurements, as I'm sure you're aware, but most people get an estimated score based on creatinine. Well, if you use something called cystatin C, um, you get this uh, GFR that is not confounded by those other factors we talked about body size, muscle mass, protein intake. And when I did that, it was like, you know, 118, 120, which is completely normal. This is despite eating three, four, five, sometimes 600 grams of protein a day, which is a hell of a lot of protein, you know, wow. I mean, far more than what we were told For is, sure. is typical. But so, so, yeah, I mean, everything's been fine. My coronary artery calcium scan was a zero, you know, wow. perfect zero. I okay. had that checked in a couple of years into it. All right. So I'm sure people are probably, whether they're listening to this in their cars or wherever, they're screaming, oh my gosh, you have to have fruits and vegetables. You can't live without fruits and vegetables. Your mom's always told us you got to have four to six fruits and vegetables every day. Uh, so, so what do you, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, obviously you don't need it. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not only me, but I mean, the thousands and thousands of people that um, have done this with, without problem, without difficulty for years, in many cases, even several decades. In fact, there's one guy did 50 some years before dying, dying in a car crash at the age of, I think, 75, 76. But, you know, we think about it, you know, if we look at the modern dietary recommendations, you know, and now it is five, you know, I think it's even 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day on top of the 11 servings of grain we're supposed to have. You know, you think about the plausibility of that, you know, I mean, not today, but if you were just to turn the clock back, say 100, 150 years, you know, not even, you know, you know, if we went back further, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 years ago, but even 150, 200 years ago, all the fruits and vegetables that we're supposed to eat, this balanced diet, this eat the rainbow, this multiple colors, where would you have ever gotten that from? I mean, most of those things aren't even found in the same region. You know, I mean, if you think about your locale, in many cases, these, these foods are not even grown on the same continent. So, I mean, this, this modern dietary recommendation is based on a, 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 basically an impossibility and it's only through year-round you know massive transportation you know that we can do the refrigeration all these things that we never had access to 
you know, if we look at the, the human, what's a human diet is supposed to be. So unless you were living in the tropics and most of us didn't for most of the time we've been on earth, you know, you have to realize that for the 3 million years humans have existed. And when I say humans, I mean, going back to Homo habilis, not just Homo sapiens, but we were in ice age for most of that time. The vast majority of that time was ice age time. That's one of the reasons we, one of the evolutionary pressures that drove us from out of the trees and stop eating, you know, fruits and leaves and then into hunting and scavenging and then hunting, driving the growth, the brain growth. And, you know, it's not until, I don't know, 50, 60,000 years ago when, when we had this massive megafaunal mega herbivore die off over hunting, you know, environmental changes, climate change, perhaps that we had to start, you know, relying again on smaller animals and higher amounts of plant food to, to get our subsistence from. But uh, humans are you know, clearly meant to eat meat. We thrive on meat. Our digestive system, our anatomy is, you know, made for that. I mean, you know, I mean, I know that people say that we don't have claws and fangs and can't run super fast, but I mean, we have the, the greatest weapon of all, which is our, our human brain ability to communicate, organize, and, you know, fashion tools, which made us the, the greatest hunters on the planet. I mean, we, I mean, there's no other creature out there that has eaten every animal on the planet. I mean, there's sharks. Sharks clearly are vicious killers, but they don't eat cows. They don't eat lions. They don't eat monkeys. Uh, and likewise, you know, uh, lions don't eat seals or you know, any of that stuff. And humans have eaten all that. I mean, we are the, we are the apex predator of the planet. But, uh, you know, I, I'm just wondering, you know, if you say fruits and vegetables are necessary for our survival, or, or even to say we thrive. And I would say neither of those are necessary, but name the vegetable or fruit that grows in every region of the planet all year round in all seasons. Mm -hmm. And then I'll tell you the necessity of that, but I, I don't think you can name one, maybe grass, perhaps if you dig down, maybe right. we should all be eating grass. Well, what about, I mean, obviously there's, there are a lot of greens that have antioxidant properties and, and fruits, you know, have a lot of vitamins. And, and so are we, are we going to miss out on those things? <sighs> One thing we know is we have antioxidants. We make antioxidants. We have things like uh, glutathione, superoxide dismutase. You know, even uric acid is an antioxidant. I mean, we have this really robust endogenous antioxidant system. And quite honestly, it works very well. We have these reactive oxygen species. We have this certain amount of oxidation and then the antioxidant system, and that's in balance. And we see a lot of, you know, even there's a lot of studies when we see particularly in the form of vitamin supplements. When you take in, you know, these antioxidants, there's a lot of studies show that they're actually deleterious in the long term. Uh, so that this, and this antioxidant theory of aging and disease has kind of fallen out of favor. That, that, that sort of theory is 30, 40 years old. And it's been kind of more or less disproven now. And we also know that many of the antioxidants in fruits and vegetables are denatured, destroyed, don't even get absorbed. The absorption rates are minuscule. Uh, and, and typically, uh, what we see in many cases, some of these plant compounds, these phytonutrients, basically act, act as hormetic stressors. And so what they do is they're actually low-grade toxins, and they basically upregulate you know, our liver enzymes, much as like an alcoholic or someone drinking alcohol. The first time you drink alcohol, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're lightweight or whatever, and you get inebriated very quickly because you're just not used to, you can't detoxify the alcohol. But anybody know this dealing with an alcoholic, I mean, they can sit there and drink and drink and drink and not even experience the effects because they've had upregulation of their alcohol dehydrogenase and some of these other defense mechanisms. So what we're seeing is these plant compounds generally show a benefit by, you know, basically low-level toxicity. It's not that they have some unique quality beneficial pro uh, property. And also that toxicity, while it may help in some area, it may hurt in other areas. You know, the classic thing is you know, perhaps like goitrogens, we, you know, we eat these cruciferous vegetables because they have things like sulforaphane, which is detoxified and then upregulates glutathione. This, by the way, it's the same enzyme pathway that detoxifies some of the meat compounds that are charred. You know, when you get charred meat and you get these polycyclic, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines that everybody complains about, they use the same exact pathway to detoxify that as we use for sulforaphane, which is found in broccoli broccoli sprouts and it's, it's touted as this great food food because it upregulates these defense mechanisms but you know the goitrogens you know they they potentially cause a thyroid dysfunction we have so many people that have how many people you know that are, have thyroid issues i mean in your practice i bet you see a ton of them a lot of sure. women 
And, you know, we have these autoimmune issues. Hashimoto is probably one of the more common autoimmune syndromes way out there. You know, could it be related to diet? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thought, but I mean, when we look at the biochemical requirements to run a human body, you need essential fats, you need essential amino acids, you need vitamins and minerals. You don't need phytochemicals. You don't need fiber. Um, The other thing that's kind of interesting and it's not talked about much, but actually in animals and meat, they actually absorb and bioconcentrate some of these phyto phytochemicals or phytonutrients, if you want to call them that, in their in their in their actual tissue. And I've interviewed a number of guys that, you know, depending on how they're fed, they you can actually get some of these compounds from eating animal animal products, interestingly. So it's it's you know, and animals eat a much greater diversity of forage in general than you and I do in a greater amounts. I mean, you know, if you look at a cow, what a cow's eating a day, they're eating gosh, 40, 50, 60, 80 pounds of food a day. I can't even, I don't know. I know gorillas are eating like 50 pounds a day and I think a cow would probably eat orders of magnitude more than that just based on size. But uh, so they're, they're, they are storing some of that up there and they're bioaccumulating some of these compounds. So you get them second in, second in anyway. So I know another question people are going to have is since we're talking about vegetables is don't you need the fiber? Uh, you know, how are you going to poop or aren't you going to be constipated without fiber? Uh, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, you know, you could assume I haven't had a bowel movement in four years because <laughs> I haven't, and that's not the truth. I mean, right. you know, even people that are fasting, right. You know, you have people that don't eat anything and they still have bowel movements. Right. And we look at what's, what makes up, you know, the composition of a bowel movement. It's, dead, you know, it's bacteria, it's, you know, sloughed off uh, cells from the digestive tract. That's the primary, those are the primary constituents. There's a little bit of food residue. And then, you know, in people that eat a high fiber diet, a lot of fiber. And what we're seeing is basically all that fiber, you you know, those, those, those high end expensive organic vegetables and organic fruits that you eat, what percent, you know, 50% of that nutrition is going into the toilet. So you're paying for you know, it's like like taking vitamins and paying for expensive urine. You're spending all this money on organic fruits and vegetables, and again, half it's going in your feces, and you're not even ac- accessing a lot of those you know m- you know nutrients. There is no evidence. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary, but there's no evidence just showing that having three bowel movements a day or two bowel movements a day or one bowel movement a day is any more healthy than having one bowel movement every two or three days. I mean, and that's. I mean, there, I, I defy anybody to show me an actual RCT, you know, not, not some epidemiologic associational study, but an actual real study that shows that and it's not been done. In fact, uh, Ann Peary published a study, I think in 2014, looking at colonoscopies and, you know, she had 2000 colonoscopies and she stratified them in, ter- in quartiles. The, the people with the highest amount of fiber that had the most bowel movements had the greatest amount of diverticular disease. And it was just the lower the fiber you had, the lower the less bowel movements, the less diverticular disease you had, which I thought was quite interesting to see that. And there's another, there's several other studies out there that show similar type findings, you know, chronic constipation gets better when you eliminate all fiber. Uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few out there. But one of the things, one of the more common things we hear about these days is um, fiber is necessary because you have bacteria that are going to convert that fiber into fermentation and short chain fatty acids, primarily butyrate. And that butyrate is going to nourish the colonocytes. So they have a healthy, you know, they're healthy and they have, uh, you know, a more robust mucus layer. Um, and then, and then, and there is some truth to that, but we also know that, you know, you can ferment amino acids and also produce short chain fatty acids, isobutyrate, propionate acetate. We also know that if you're on a lower carb diet, ketogenic diet, perhaps carnivore diet, you will start producing a lot more ketone bodies. And one of those, or the main one that's in the bloodstream is called beta-hydroxybutyrate, which sounds a whole bunch like butyrate. It's just one hydroxyl you know, molecule away. I mean, it's just a little OH molecule, which is very readily reversible. And so, and we know that the colonocytes have a blood supply. So they have access to butyrate or, or beta-hydroxybutyrate regardless if you get it from diet or not. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, one of these things where we have this, sort of desperate belief that we've got to have fiber. Uh, we've got to have, you know, these types of things. We try to prove that through these mechanistic, and, and it's a problem. Again, the nutrition science is very difficult to do because, you know, like I said, if we were to assume that, um, well, let, let's just say this, fiber is essential for good health, you know, you put, because it does all these things in the colon. And yet we have people that have had colectomies, you know, and they don't even have a colon, 
right? Mm-hmm. So the fiber's not going to do them any good. There's no bacterial microbiome interaction. And these people with colectomies, you know, particularly the ones that don't have cancer, that didn't lose it, you know, didn't have some sort of, you know, advanced stage cancer, they live a normal lifespan in many cases. I mean, they, you know, if they've, if they've lost their colon due to ulcerative colitis or uh, something, trauma perhaps, and they have a colectomy, they don't need fiber. They, in fact, they do worse with fiber because what, what you know, you talk to anybody who's had an ileostomy, and I've talked to several, whenever they eat fruits and vegetables, I mean, it just all ends up in the bag. Nothing gets digested. I mean, it's completely, completely passed unchanged into their colon. Uh, when they eat meat, guess what? It's all absorbed. It's all completely utilized. And so mm-hmm. this belief that we need this indigestible substance to, to, to stay healthy, you know, it's kind of a, almost ridiculous to think, you know, why would I something that, why would I put something indigestible in my digestive tract? I mean, it's like you could eat, I guess you could eat rocks for the same benefit perhaps, but uh, you know, fiber, it's not to say that fiber cannot be beneficial. I think that's context dependent. I think, you know, some of the mitigates a glucose excursion, but that's in the context of a high carbohydrate diet. You know, like I said, you know, if you drink apple juice and watch your blood glucose go up, it'll go up fairly rapidly. If you eat an apple, with the same amount of caloric and glucose load, it's going to go up much more slowly. So it does have a benefit in that regard. But if you're eating a carnivore diet, one, you're not taking in the carbohydrates anyway. And then the fat is going to do the same thing as the fiber does. It just kind of mitigates any kind of glucose response. Mm-hmm. You mentioned ke- uh, you know, ketosis. I'm curious, um, do, do you ever check your like urine ketones? Are you in ketosis all the time or do you, do you care? Do you ever check? The, the important aspect there is I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's, I think it can be helpful in certain situations. You know, I just trying to say, what is my goal here? What am I trying to achieve with a nutritional strategy? And it's basically health. And how do I define health? Well, I define my health relatively subjectively. I mean, there's some objective things we can look at, you know, what's your waist size? You know, how much do you weigh? How much body fat do you have? Um, how much visceral fat do you have, so on and so forth. But how do I feel? Is that dependent upon what my ketone level is or something else? And I'm not convinced it's, yeah. it's, it's dependent upon ketone levels. And secondly, in fact, we know there's people that can gain weight while in ketosis. They can put on body fat. Ketosis doesn't necessarily mean automatically mean you're losing weight. It can mean that, and often it, it, can, it, it does. And the ketones are formed by lipolysis, uh, you know, uh, by, by when lipolysis is occurring. But I don't regularly check that. I mean, you know, I, I check glucose occasionally. Um, if you're treating a particular condition, obviously for epilepsy, which is why where a ketogenic diet originated from back in the 1920s, that's a reason to maybe do that. Some people for cancer treatment will utilize it. Uh, there's a, there's probably some other situations where it may be help. There's some thought that in mental health disorders that ketosis seems to help. And so that may be a benefit. But honestly, um, you know, my my sort of metrics – are more subjective in, in quality of life in, in whether I, and if I have to check ketones every day to, to, to tell me if I'm happy or, yeah, you know, having a good life, then, then maybe I'm missing the point. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so, so other questions people are going to have, I know they're going to say, okay, well, what about heart disease? You know, all this meat and the fat on the meat is going to cause heart disease. It's going to raise my cholesterol. Um, now you don't have to convince me about cholesterol. I'm actually going to do an episode on, on cholesterol at some point, you know, because I, I just think we have got that wrong as I'm sure you probably agree. But wh- I mean, what would you say about an all meat based diet and, and, you know, the potential of increased heart disease, cholesterol, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the honest answer is we truly don't know. I mean, we don't have any sort of, you know, and this is one of the knocks is say, well, there's not any data. I mean, there's data on standard American diet, which is basically a little bit of meat and a whole bunch of junk food. And we like to point the finger at meat. But I mean, I think every RCT that's ever been done looking at meat does not come to the conclusion that it causes heart disease. Now, there's, again, most people will point to these epidemiological survey data, which is not a scientific study. It is plagued by tremendous confounders, recall bias, you know, the food frequency questionnaire. It's just a, it's kind of a, kind of, cluster on that stuff. But so, you know, and, and just this year, as you probably are aware, Journal of American College of Cardiologists came out and said, look, saturated fat from red meat, from milk, from eggs, from chocolate does not lead to heart disease. I mean, there's no strong evidence to suggest that it does. And so, I mean, really most of the data, or I would say most, but a significant amount of the data that has come out in the last decade really kind of points away from that fact that saturated fat 
being the bad guy. Now it's probably neutral, you know, is what, what mm-hmm. most people would say they're familiar with the, with the literature on that. And again, we have to look at the context of where you're getting saturated fat. Is your saturated fat in a muffin? Is it in a Twinkie? You know, where are you getting it? And, you know, I would argue that the vast majority of the saturated fat that many Americans eat are getting it through some of these processed food. Now dairy is pretty high in saturated fat. That's a, that, that may be a different topic. And the majority of the animal products in the, the American diet tends to come from dairy. I mean, red meat, just so people understand, well, beef in particular, the average American eats around two to 2.4 ounces a day. That is an abysmally small amount of beef. Uh, you know, you think about how much two ounces is. I mean, it's just a tiny amount. Back in 1977, you know, you know, the Americans had peaked in their beef consumption. I think it was around, I want to say it was around 96 kilos per year, might have been pounds per year per person. And now it's down to around 55, 56, something slightly gone up the last year or two. But we've had about a 40, 40% reduction in the amount of beef we eat in the United States since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And with that red meat going down, did we get thinner and healthier and less diabetic? Not, no, absolutely not. We went the other no. way. So it's kind of, it's kind of just ridiculous to point the finger that way, but there's a lot of, uh, I think ethical bias towards, you know, demonizing meat, unfortunately. I'm, I'm curious if you even monitor your cholesterol, because if you were my patient eating how you do and you come in and, and, you know, we were to check labs and I'm sure you have a really low fasting insulin. I'm sure you have really low triglycerides, you know, and, and you already said your calcium scores zero your inflammatory uh, markers i'm sure are zero so with all that uh, me personally i wouldn't really care like what your ldl is or your overall cholesterol is uh, is that something that you even monitor on yourself i've looked at it a couple times and you're pretty right i mean you know basically you know slightly ele- i saw a slight elevate you know, in fact quite honestly and i haven't checked labs a tremendous number of time but the, la- the time i had checked my cholesterol maybe seven or eight years prior, my LDL and total cholesterol didn't move much at all. It didn't change. But what did go, what did happen was my HDL went up a bit about 20% yeah. and my triglycerides went down to like 50. I mean, it was just, it was very low. Yeah. So inflammatory markers, yeah. low insulin, low, all those types of things, you know, LFT is fine. Kidney, kidney function, fine. More importantly, like I said, that, that coronary artery calcium scan, scan being zero, I mean, what I tell people, I don't totally disregard cholesterol because I do think LDL cholesterol, I think, you know, as a screening tool, you know, you can utilize it, but then you have to ask the question if you're a, and again, one of the problems with the modern medical system is, you know, you've got 15 minutes as a luxury to see your patients. A lot of physicians are seeing them, you know, one every <laughs> six, seven minutes, but you, you know, you get five minutes, eight minutes with your patient between EMR and coding and billing and all the other junk that goes into that and stuff. So you don't have a lot of time to, to get into the nuance. And so if the LDL cholesterol is up high, you say, a lot of people say, well, 88% of the Americans are metabolically unhealthy. Let's tell them to go on a low fat diet and take a statin. And that, that probably covers you 90% of the time. But now we've got this growing group of people that are generally metabolically healthy and it's a different cohort. So yeah, I think you have to look into that. And so I think I, you know, rather than risk factors, and there's many of them, as you know, I mean, tax score, age, sex, smoking history, family history, diabetes history, blood pressure, all those things that you can roll the triglycerides, you can roll, you can roll all these things into there, you know, whether it's oxidized LDL, particle size, um, and, but that takes more time and more nuance, and, and you have a physician that's engaged or, or even knows this stuff. Many of them don't even know this stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. I prefer to look, you know, if, I'm not, if, if somebody has that, you know, if somebody tells me, hey, my LDL cholesterol is 300, I'll say, hey, it may be fine. I think it, it's, it, it makes sense to be prudent, make sure all those other markers are looking good. And then you can survey it with coronary artery calcium scans, provided you're old enough, over age 40 or 45, depending on who you listen to. Perhaps maybe CIMT scores on the neck might be another way to kind of monitor things because that tends to be a little more dynamic. You can see if there's, you know, do we see plaque in the, between the intima and the media? And uh, you can kind of monitor that over, and that changes week to, you know month to month at least and so you can kind of get an idea yeah. of monitoring disease it makes more sense to look at disease rather than you know risk factors to me so another question uh you know people are going to have is okay what about a potential increased risk in cancer and i'm going to take that a step further and get in the weeds a little bit i'm sure you're probably familiar with uh, walter longo he's done some studies on mTOR uh you know increased protein increases mTOR which is then going to increase your risk for cancer 
obviously on a carnivore diet, it's very high protein. Uh, I mean, what would you say about the mTOR and then just, you know, cancer risk in general? Yeah, specifically, uh, so the study that Longo is sort of basing that on, the only human study is a, a study that he, I think he was the primary author or the senior author, and, and Levine was the first author on that. And, you know, that was, they, they harvested NHANES data, and that's, this is the repository of what people eat in the U.S. And I actually, there was some severe, severe criticism levied about that study. And one of the guys, Don Lehman, who's one of the world's leading researchers in protein, you know, basically protein in general, you know, muscle building, protein metabolism, protein biology, you know, uh, Stu Phillips and about 10 other authors, authored a letter and said, look, this is, not only is this paper bad, it is one of the, probably one of the worst papers ever published. They completely botched the NHANES data. They selectively chose what they did. They had statistical uh, outcomes which were completely impossible. I mean, these, these are just like, these are, there's no way these things can be true. Um, and then they had, a, they had the opposite conclusion. You know, if you're in midlife, 40s, 50s, and you eat a high-protein diet, you're, you know, 400%, seven, it was like 73 times likely to get diabetes or something, some ridiculous number, 400%, a lot more likely to get cancer or shorten your life. But then magically, once you get to 60, it reverses. So it's like, what is the biological plausibility or mechanism for that happening? And so they authored this lengthy, and I actually have the criticism. I've got the letter they wrote. Uh, they wrote, they sent it into Cell Metabolism, the, the, the journal that was published in, and they refused to publish that, you know, that, that critique, partly because Longo sits on the editorial board and they refused to publish that. And so that study, you know, again, outside of that study, there's really no human data. In fact, there's so much human data to show the opposite. Uh, but I mean, basically they've got studies on nematodes and mosquitoes and fruit flies and a few rat studies, which are not good proxies for humans when it comes to longevity. There's so many problems with that. Um, but, but, you know, if you look at the data on, we know what happens when you restrict protein, particularly as people age, they become sarcopenic, they become frail, they have fragility fractures, they have their, their organs shrink, they, you know, they just, it's just a, it's just a disaster. This is the American nursing home system. You see all these people that are protein deficient and just, you know, they're just, they're just incapacitated with function. We have so many studies that show that maintaining skeletal muscle mass provides function, protects our bones, prevents cancer, prevents heart disease, improves neurocognitive outcomes. So, I mean, this is just, you know, to say to limit protein. Now, the, 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 the cancer in general, you know, the, the biggest, I think the biggest thing, the thing everybody focuses on is this 20, 2015 WHO uh, IARC proclamation that red meat is a class two carcinogen, processed meat is a class one carcinogen. And again, that study, it was a, you know, I think it was, I can't remember, it was a 22 member panel or something like that, met in Lyon, France, and did this in 2015. And the problem with that is, Almost all of the recommendation came from epidemiology. I've talked to several of the people that were on that panel, panel uh, and um, David Clurfield, professor, has been doing his whole life, sat on the panel. He's, and this was not a unanimous decision, by the way. There was a lot of dissent. Um, he said this was the most frustrating pro pro uh, process he'd ever been to because they just completely ignored any study that would point away from red meat causing cancer. I mean, they just, just flat out disregarded it, threw it out, didn't even want to look at it. About a third of the panel were ethical vegan, vegetarian, Seventh-day Adventist. They did not disclose that information. You know, he asked for it to be disclosed. They said, no, it's not important. We're not going to do that. Um, since that. Since that 2015 position paper came out, there's been several uh, uh, systematic reviews of red meat, one done 2019 by Nutrix, 14, uh, I think 13, 14 authors from around the world, notably uh, McMaster's University. He, uh, you know, he was a guy that basically invented the term evidence-based medicine. You know, in 1991, he actually invented evidence-based medicine, and he was one of the senior authors on this paper. So he basically went through and looked at the evidence and said, there's no strong evidence whatsoever, you know, leads us to believe that red meat causes heart disease, cancer, or really anything else that has been on it. Any study that suggests that is extremely weak. So we don't really have good data on to show that, that that's going on. And if you look at the Asian data, even the epidemiologic data in Asia, again, when we look at Western dietary patterns in, in its consumption of red meat, it's often, you know, the classic 
hamburger, French fries, Coca-Cola, you know, the, the, you know, hot apple pie type of thing, McDonald's classic junk food meal. And it's very much confounded by all those things. But when you look at how the Asians eat meat, it's usually some sort of vegetable thing or something like that. So they're not eating the junk food with it. And in their data, when you look at the epidemiologic data out of Asia, which is about 15% of the data, almost no relationship, you know, overall, there's most of the studies point to no relationship or an inverse relationship with red meat and cancer. And so these, you know, if you look at everything subsequent to 2015, numerous studies now point to the fact that uh, this, this is just, uh, no, you know, there's no, nothing there outside of epidemiology and a couple really poorly done rat studies. So I, I, I would just challenge the fact that red meat causes cancer. Now, what you eat with it, perhaps, and some of the other lifestyles that are associated with that, the fact that people that eat more red meat, you know, die more frequently in auto accidents, you know, does red meat cause auto accidents? Or is it just a lifestyle? Do they drink more? Do they smoke more? Do they not exercise? Do they let themselves get obese? Do they go to the doctor? Do, you know, do they, you know, you know, healthy user bias is, is, is a tremendous confounder here. So who do you feel would benefit most from a carnivore diet? I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of the ultimate elimination diet. And so the people I've been encouraging to try this is, you know, like autoimmune patients who have maybe felt some other things. That's kind of where I'm starting and kind of opening the door to this. But uh, is there a certain subgroup that you think would benefit more than others? Yeah, I mean, I think that autoimmune group is definitely a uh, good place to start. Um, you know, I would, you know, I would put some of the GI disorders, you know, I mean, obviously ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, also autoimmune diseases, but they, you know, the primary gut diseases, some people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is, as you're probably aware, is go- growing in, in prevalence. I mean, I think we've got something like 15% or maybe 20% of the population now carries that diagnosis. I think in Mexico, it's like 40% of the population. And so I think those two are pretty interesting places. What I'm really surprised, we see a no, quite a few people with refractory um, m- mental health disorders getting better. I mean, I've seen hmm. chronic depression, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, even PTSD benefit from this to, to, to a large degree. So those are the people, again, I, don't, I have never advocated that all people need to do this. I'm not going to say it works for everybody. Um, but I will, what I will say is, you know, for many people where, you know, you, you, you know, as you see a lot of people like, and you know, you get these patients where they're, they've got a med list, you know, two pages long and an algae list just as long. They've been to 7,000 doctor's appointments and specialists and they get bounced around. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to do anything. Cause they're like, you know, you, you know, you just see these people that, that they're just lost causes. And it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you can't do anything for them. Those folks I think would benefit from it. I mean, certainly it helps with, diabetes and metabolic syndrome and obesity, but a lot of things help with that. So this is people, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of things people can do outside of a carnivore diet to lose weight, to improve their diabetes, to improve their glycemic control. Many of those tend to be low carb options, but the extreme elimination of a carnivore diet, I think um, is something that where you, you got these tough cases and it's not to say these other people can't do it because it becomes, I think, I almost use it, I like to call it a, kind of a reset. You know, it's kind of like a physiologic reset button. You know, you, like when you're a baby, you know, you're eating basically an animal-based diet. You know, it's breast milk for the first wild humans. Indigenous humans do it for about two and a half years on average. You know, most modern people, six months a year. But we start out on this sort of clean slate, clean, you know, functioning organ systems. And it's not till later in life that everything starts to break down. Unfortunately, we're, you know, as you probably were, we're seeing kids six, seven, eight years old that already are on their way to obesity and diabetes and insulin resistance. But um, I think it's a reset button and I think it gives your gut. It's a wonderful rest for the gut. Um, It is, it's a place you can, you can kind of leave from and come back to as you need to. So a lot of people, in my experience, probably 90% of the people that that do this diet stay about 90% strict. And I think that's, you know, because it gives people a little bit of room to, you know, I want to have this and that every once in a while. And it's not, it's not a uh, doctrine. It's not a cult. It's not a religious thing. It's not reverse veganism where veganism is very much ideologically driven where you, if you so as much as think about smelling, you know, some cooking meat, you're all, all of a sudden an evil person. This is not like this. I, I you know, I define this diet as animal based, get your nutrition there. You know, you limit you limit or eliminate the plant foods as necessary for health. Some people need to fully eliminate, other people it's a little bit of limitation. 
and you just kind of see where you land and you just kind of, you know, kind of experiment there. But I think there's not too many people I think that couldn't benefit from it, but I would say for the people that it would be something would be ideal for them is, is probably a smaller subset. My goal is to kind of do a carnivore-ish diet. <laughs> I've, I've been probably kind of keto-ish for, I don't know, a couple of years now. And I don't have any health problems, so I just do it to be healthy. Uh, you know, I don't have really any problems whatsoever. Um, but the more I read about carnivore and the more I learn, I, I do really think it's a healthy way to eat. I don't know that I could be super strict. I, I really like my coffee. You know, I like my occasional beverage, you know, even a, a occasional sweets. And so... Uh, you know, I don't know that I could be that strict, but again, I don't have, um, you know, any, any health problems to motivate me to be strict. So, uh, is, is, is that what you say most people would do maybe kind of a carnivore ish? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think, you know, I, I surveyed, I got a, I got a, I did a survey a little few earlier this year and I got something like 12,000 responses within 24 hours of people doing it. We had people of different durations and different sort of strictness from starting at 70% up to nine, up to hundred percent. And what we saw is, you know, first of all, from duration, the three month points seemed to be the inflection point where people were seeing improvement, seeing improvement. When you get to three months, it was dramatic improvement for most conditions. We, we, you know, we asked a whole plethora of things, you know, for how strict they were, 80% was better than 70%, 90% was better than 80%. And then from 90% to 100%, there was still improvement, but it wasn't, you know, as big of a jump. And so it was kind of like, you know, it was like, it's kind of levels off the closer you get, but there still is a slight improvement. And, you know, it may be these people that are strict autoimmune issues that, 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 that kind of do that. Um, so, I mean, I do think there's room, and I would say 90% of the people end up doing about 90% strict. And they realize they feel great, but they're like, hey, I want a piece of birthday cake every once in a while. Sometimes I want some avocado or some yeah. blueberries or whatever. And I, and I don't, that's fine. I'm saying if it works for you and I tell people just be objective and, you know, just, you know, like I said, and even if it, you know, even if it bugs you and you're willing to live with that, you know, you might, I might, you know, you know, you, you might say, well, I'm going to go, go out and, you know, have some other stuff and, you know, I'm going to have got gastrointestinal issues for a day and I'm okay with that. Hey, that's fine. You know, that's, if that's your deal, that's your deal. Other people are like, you know, I've got, you know, I have a meeting every morning with this meter X company we have and I've got, we've got thousands and thousands of members and they all, many of them show up every morning at 9am. I do a meeting with all the members or sometimes it's a podcast, but and I ask people, we've got some folks that are like, man, I, I'm a hundred percent strict. And if I deviate in a little bit, I get crazy. I've got a guy that's got this chronic lifetime depression with psychotic features. If he's only, if he just eats beef and bacon, he's a happy man and everything's good. Something else gets in there. It's like his symptoms start coming back. We see all a number of people. And then we have some people that are kind of like, Hey, I do carnivore and I'll throw some spices on my food or I'll make this little recipe. And sometimes I'll throw a little this or that in there and whatever. We're all, it's all fun. Yeah. But I imagine if you're trying to treat an autoimmune disease, I mean, you probably need to be pretty strict though, right? Yeah, that's, that's how I approach it. And I think, and the other thing is we're, we're developing some machine learning models to look at um, as we get more and more data within our community, we're seeing, you know, who needs this and that. And Sometimes it's a fat ratio, fat to protein ratio. There's some differences in how you, you know, whether you go into ketosis, you know, whether you, you know, eat a higher protein and there's different people that, that do better different ways. And so the things we're leading, but I do think, yeah, if you're, if you're dealing with an autoimmune disease, I think there is some definite benefit from being very strict for at least a discrete period of time, somewhere like three to six months to see if you can seriously impact, impact this. And then, and then it becomes, what can I add back in? And how do I do that? And I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's a system to doing that. So on that note, how can people get started? If they're interested in trying this, what's your recommendation? I mean, do they just stop cold Turkey, everything or. Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's definitely some ways to transition into it. And I think people, first of all, I want to say if you are fairly sick and on a lot of medications and, and, you know, this goes for really any low carb diet, really, you probably need to involve your healthcare provider, you know, because some of these diets, I mean, they can dramatically decrease your requirement for things like blood pressure medications, certain diabetes medications, even some of the mood medications. So you need to get with your prescribing physician or healthcare provider and say, Hey, look, I'm going to be going on a low carb diet, carnivore diet, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and just 
get some support because uh, you know you 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 may find that your blood glucose is bottoming out, or your high, your blood pressure is bottoming out because you're on too much medicate medication. So that can happen within a few days, and so there's a caveat there. But I think that um, for some people that are particularly like big time, you know, sugar addicts, just very physiologically dependent upon glucose you know, you might find that a, that a transition period works and then going strict because it's kind of like kind of recovering from an addiction for some people, you know, and it's kind of like one of those things, it's like you wouldn't tell an alcoholic to, you know, give up alcohol except for, you know, on the weekends, you can have a couple on the weekends. That's not how that works. And so you have to kind of detox these people uh, or, you know, get them off the, the, the problematic issue. You know, and some people will say sugar is a drug, other people will We'll push back pretty hard on that. But regardless, we see a lot of people struggle with that. And so it's, sometimes it's just doing that. I know, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this again. MeterX is a resource that we've created that has basically everything you're going to need to transition to the diet. Uh, you know, so you can go there, join for free. Uh, you know, if you want, if you want, if you stick around after a month, you know, you can continue to do that. But we've got coaching, we've got, you know, recipes, we've got resource materials, you know, uh, research articles, uh, testimonials, you know, you know, just everything you're going to need to, to get started, um, FAQs and so on and so forth. Um, you know, my book is outlines a lot of the, a lot of the stuff where you can go. I think, you know, I think one of the things I've learned is, you know, knowledge is great. And a lot of people say, well, it's not our honesty, meat and water, but it, a lot of people end up with questions and things start to happen physiologically and they want to, to be reassured or, or get somebody with some experience. There's sometimes some weird things happen that, 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 you know, unless you've had experience, you're not sure what to do with that. Um, and so support becomes very helpful because, you know, when you're going on a carnivore diet, you know, the, the, the usual answer is, well, the physician's not going to like it. Uh, the family may not like it. You get isolated. You know, everybody's telling you you're going to die. You're going to have a heart attack. Your colon's going to fall out. Yada, yada, yada. You're going to get, you know, whatever, you know, your kidneys are going to die or something. It's, you know, all this stuff is not based on any real scientific truth, but it's just that popular sort of nutritional dogma that's out there. And uh, so support becomes very important. So get somebody that can support you. And that's another one of the services we provide over there. So I think that's been one of the lessons I've learned. And, and I would tell patients to, um, you know, anybody that's interested in this. And obviously if you're, if you're my patient, I'm going to be very supportive of this, but um, I don't know how it is there, but there's a lot of physicians around here that just aren't supportive uh, of even a you know, ketogenic type of a diet. Um, and, and especially something, you know, much more extreme, like, like carnivore. And so, uh, I had one patient that had started on, on a keto diet, uh, blood sugar was great, had gotten off a lot of medicine, was feeling good. Blood pressure was down, went to see a specialist. And I can't remember, it was either a cardiologist, endocrinologist, I can't remember. And they said, you need to get off that ketogenic diet. So they came back to me and they said, they told me to get off the ketogenic diet. And I said, let me get this straight. Your, your blood sugar's better. You're feeling good. You've lost weight. And they want you off. Did they say why? No, they just told me to get off. And so I, I say all that if your doctor, not that you shouldn't listen to your doctor, but if you have a doctor that says, oh, no, don't ever do anything like that, eh, just do your research, I guess is what I would say. Let's say get a new damn doctor. <laughs> that's my, you know, and we, you know, like I said, we've got a big yeah. list of them on our site, but I mean, and, and, and that's the thing. I had a patient that was, a, I, I, I wasn't going to say it like that, but, but you did. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, well, I mean, that's fair yeah, enough. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. I don't care at this point, but um, right, 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 I mean, I care, but I, I don't, I'm not worried about offending people, but I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I had a, I had a guy joint replacement and I put him on a ketogenic diet and he was like 380 pounds and he dropped 80 pounds and like, like three months and he went to his internal medicine doctor he'd been seeing for 20 years and the guy asked him what he was doing how he lost weight and he said no 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 that's dangerous to lose that much weight and he came back to me and told me this and i said you've got a doctor that's been seeing you for 20 years and you haven't lost a pound in fact you've gained 100 pounds and he's telling you it's dangerous to lose weight because of the diet you know? <laughs> yeah. just insane it just it just it it's just a, it, it just boggles it's a mind. crazy it's a crazy yeah. system we're in yeah yeah i mean you've got you know you've got a happy patient that is smiling and feels good. And all of a sudden you're telling them, stop doing that. It doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. So what is a, what is a daily diet look like for you? Like what are some daily meals for you? Um, yeah, for me right now, well, I mean, it depends on what I'm trying to do. Right now I'm trying to gain weight. So I'm eating like okay. a, a horse right now. I'm eating five, 6,000 calories a day wow. uh, over about three meals. 
Um, you know, it's, it's usually a couple pounds of steak in the morning. Maybe I'll have an omelet, eight or eight or 10 egg omelet with some bacon and cheese in there. Afternoon might be these chaffles, which for those people that don't know, it's cheese and egg. Uh, so usually it's like, I, like my recipe, it's three eggs, a cup of mozzarella cheese, a little bit of salt, throw it in a waffle maker, press it down, you know, and throw some, then I'll throw some sandwich meat in there, you know, some lunch meat or hamburger patty, and then just kind of toast it in the, uh, in the pan and the grill and some butter. Uh, dinner will be maybe some fish, maybe some more steak. Uh, and, and that's kind of a typical day for me right now. And so outside of that, when I'm not trying to gain weight, because right now I'm actually eating beyond what my appetite would dictate, it would be two meals a day, almost 90% of the time. It'd be, it'd be kind of a latest breakfast and early dinner. I tend to eat in a, in a relatively compact window of about eight hours, um, partly because I just don't like eating too late at night. When I eat a lot, a lot of food late at night, I don't sleep as well. Um, I think there's some, you know, there is some decent circadian, uh, circadian uh, rhythm science out there that, that would, or circadian biology science out there that would tell us that there may be some better times, some beneficial times of eating earlier in the day, you know, as, as opposed to later in the evening, you know, but that's, I think that, that that's probably a minor component, but that's what I seem to do better with. So are, are you uh, uh, got a competition of some kind coming up? Is that why you're trying to gain weight? Or well, I mean, I, I spent this year, so I'm 54. I'm about to turn well. I'm about to turn 54, um, and then I spent this year, a lot of this year, getting lean because people say you really can't get lean on a carnivore diet. So I got just shredded. I mean, I got the leanest I've ever been in my whole life, best comp- best shape I've been in my entire life at 53, and I lost a lot of weight. And I'm like, well, I need to put it put it back on now because I want to I want to make sure as I get the next you know, I think it's important. I think muscle is such a valuable metabolic capital that you need to make sure you maintain that, particularly as I'm, but you know, I'll be going into my sixties not too long ago. And I want to make sure I have a, a decent baseline to start with. And so, plus it's fun. I haven't trained for strength and size in about a decade. And so it's kind of like I've been just kind of maintaining and doing aerobic stuff and doing some strength training, but it's kind of just for me, a little bit fun, just try to put on a little size and, and, you know, see what we can do in our mid fifties. And again, because the people are saying, well, you've got to have carbs to put on weight. And I'm like, no, that's not what the science says. It's not what my experience, you know, it's just, it's protein and it's calories. And it's just, it's just eating enough and eating enough protein. It doesn't have to be carbs. It can be fat. It can be where are you going to get your calorie source? Obviously fat's easier to get calories from than it is protein. But, uh, well, what about people who are going to say, well, I can't afford that, man, because it sounds expensive to eat a bunch of, you know, steaks every day. So is, is there a budget friendly? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, this is, and this is a thing and this, and I wrote this in my book. In fact, we have, I mean, we have a disaster of, 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 of metabolic disease looming. We have diabetes. And as you probably were, that's going to turn into a dementia epidemic as all these diabetics become 60 and 70 and start having dementia symptoms. The solution you know, I mean, we have, it's hard to go into any town in America and not find a hamburger store, you know, McDonald's, Wendy's or something. I mean, and it's cheap. It's not expensive. I mean, you can go to, you can go to McDonald's and get literally a pound of beef for a couple bucks cooked. And, you know, you just don't eat the bun and you don't eat the, this Coca-Cola and all that crap. Just get burger patties. If you want to throw some bacon on there, maybe a little piece of cheese, if you feel like it, you can buy ground beef, you can do eggs it doesn't have to be grass-fed. It doesn't have to be grass-fed. It doesn't have to be organic. I mean, there are environmental benefits to doing that. I certainly, and I, and I certainly rep, rep, uh, support, you know, regenerative agriculture and some of these things. Cause I think it's from a sustainable standpoint, it makes sense. But from a human health standpoint, again, um, I've seen so many people get better eating Walmart meat and, you know, cheap bacon and, they get off their diabetes meds, they lose weight, they get off their psych meds. It just works. And so um, it's not as complicated as some people try to point out. There's some people who say, well, you got to eat only the finest and you got to include these organs in there. I mean, that's just not what actually works at, at the end of the day. You know, and I'm, I'm more interested in the results and the real human outcomes rather than some theoretical um, beliefs uh, rather than some feel good narrative. I mean, that's great. And I support that stuff. But at the end of the day, what works for, you know, what's going to work for some, you know, if, if, if the only way this were to work, if you were to eat six ounces of liver three times a week and three ounces of kidney once a week and two ounces of brain once a week and uh, two times a month, eat some thymus 
And oh, by the way, it all has to be regeneratively raised and grass finished. No one's going to do this. But if I, but if we say, hey, man, you can just go eat ground beef in a tube from Walmart seven days a week. If that's all your budget allows, and you throw some eggs in there once in a while, you have a steak, and it does work. You know, and, and it works for the majority of the people. That's fine. I mean, you know, we can figure out the, the environmental issues and some of this other stuff later. But at the meantime, let's help as many people as possible, regardless of their socioeconomic status. And I think that's a that's a message I try to get out there. Yeah, you might be able to tweak and you know turn a few things, but if you take somebody who's metabolically broken, sick, just kind of checked out of life because of their their, their health conditions, you can bring them back with without spending a ton of money. And I think that's a great thing about this. And, you know, like I said, we can, and again, I try to work on improving the food system through, you know, getting information out there. And that's something we can work on later. But if you've got a bunch of sick people, you ain't getting nothing done. Well, what about organ meats? I mean, do you incorporate organ meats? Um, you said it's, it's not maybe necessary, but is, you know, do you recommend it? Well, personally, it's not a priority for me. I, I mean, it's not that I've never had organ meats. I've had them, you know, occasionally once in a while. I don't personally find them palatable, quite honestly. Okay. I don't know. And I think maybe it's just one of those things where some people, some people taste it different than those. You know, we have low and high tasters and some people when they eat asparagus or urine smells and some people don't, you know, it's just, so I think there's, there's some folks that, that enjoy it and truly do enjoy it. And others that don't my, so again, survey data, 12,000 people doing the diet, 15%, 15% eat organ meats on a regular basis. 85% of the people, um, do not eat them at all or eat them very infrequently. Um, and I, and I define frequently as at least once a week. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's some people who eat once a month or, or never outcome differences is none. We can't find any differences in outcomes with regard to coming off medications, losing weight, improving, you know, diabetes markers, blood pressure markers, so on and so forth. So it's not to say that you shouldn't eat it. It's not to say that you couldn't benefit from it additionally. I think it's something individually should try it. But those out there saying you must do it this way or you're going to have problems, I think the data doesn't support that. And I'm not going to say that and say you must do it this way or you're on the JV team or yeah, you're, yeah. You know, you're not optimal because that's just not what I've seen you know, observing. Yeah. I probably observe more people than arguably anybody out there. Yeah. And, and I don't think we can be too dogmatic, like you said, or else nobody would do it. So yeah, I think that's fair. So, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, you've heard probably thousands of, of testimonials. Uh, is there, is there one that maybe sticks out in your head that you could share that just was maybe like an amazing transformation uh, on carnivore? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I've got, we've got so many people with this, these tremendous, you know, weight loss stories and autoimmune recoveries and, you know, it's mental health recoveries and, infertile women be having babies and all that stuff. But I mean, and, and those things are great and wonderful. And we've got almost 600 of those testimonials on our website of Meterex, all categorized by section, you know, health, health condition. Um, the thing that really sort of, sort of shocked me the most is we have another, actually another physician, she's an emergency room physician named Don Layton. She had uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, you know, which is a collagen disorder. It's a genetic collagen disorder which leads to hyperelastic skin and joint instability. And she was in her mid fifties. And she, as an ER physician, she would start out every day with anywhere between two and four, four joints completely dislocated from sleeping. So wow. she wake up in the morning, have to put her ankle back in place, put a shoulder back into place, you know, and this was, and then she would go to work and 50% of the days, one of her joints would pop out of place while she was at work and she'd have to stop and put her joints back in place. This was her life. And as this is progressing, um, and she'd had it her whole life, as this is progressing, she's starting to develop arthritis and pain because of so much trauma from the joints subluxing, dislocating all the time. She went on a carnivore diet. Within one month, joint dislocations went to none, zero. A year later, still zero dislocations. She's back in the gym, lifting weights, doing full squats, exercising. Pain is all completely gone. Uh, has lost 30 or 40 pounds because now she can exercise, you know, and this is a genetic disorder. And I'm like, this doesn't, I'm trying to figure out the mechanism by which this would help. And then, you know, I guess, you know, you could say there's maybe some epigenetic modifications, you know, maybe improve the collagen quality somehow through, you know, dietary modification, maybe providing the framework to build that through diet. You know, we do have, uh, when it comes to collagen, we do have actually gut transporters for both hydroxylysine 
and hydroxyproline. And I don't know if you remember your biochemistry, but those are the things that vitamin C acts upon to, to help you know, build collagen. So I don't know. That was one that I thought that was one of the most sort of shocking things to me as a physician. You know, I, you know, when somebody says they reverse their diabetes, I mean, that's like, yeah, that's run of the mill. You know, mm-hmm. I lost a hundred pounds. Yeah, no big deal. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's, that's, yes, that's old news. But some of these things are just, you know, just amazing. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Well, okay. Well, I always end my podcast by asking my guests to share one health tip with us that can just make us make us uh, healthier today. I know we're talking about the carnivore diet, uh, but uh, you know, you can say that or just something else. What would you give us? Well, I mean, I think the first thing, you know, the health tip would be to start to take an active interest in your health. I think mean, that's the biggest thing. I mean, most people don't. I mean, most people are kind of passive about this. Don't outsource your health, whether it's to your family, your friends, or even your physician. I mean, you are the primary one that's responsible for your health. And, you know, like I said, I mean, you know, as a physician, you've got 10 minutes with a patient every three months or so. I mean, you know, you get, you live with yourself 24 hours a day. Uh, you got to walk around in that body. You're the only one that's responsible for that. And you can get some help and support and some, some direction, but you've got to, you've got to take it under your, into your own hands to do that. And don't be afraid to assess what works and don't, don't listen to me. Don't listen to anybody else. Look in the mirror you know, be objective about what works and try to be, be willing to try different things because I mean, we, you know, we have a problem, whatever, whatever we're telling people, either they're not doing it well or it ain't working. And so I think we have to try, we have to do something different. And I, I'm not, you know, I, I think, you know, if you, if you need to make a big change and you need to change things in a big way, and it may be going on an extreme elimination diet or some kind of exercise routine, I don't think that, you know, moderation and walking, you know, taking the stairs instead of the elevator is going to do a whole lot, yeah. you know, in the long run. I think you got to be more, you got to be more aggressive than that. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, very good. Uh, so the book is The Carnivore Diet by Sean Baker. Uh, website is meatrx.com. Are there any other places people can find you or resources? Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty active on social media. So I've got, uh, you know, I guess most of the major social media things, although I'm kind of a little frustrated because we are seeing more and more censorship, even in the diet world, which is a little frustrating. You know, we see some shadow banning and that type of stuff going on. But I am on Instagram, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, 1967. Um, Twitter at SBakerMD. I've got a YouTube channel, which I'm currently unable to load, unable to load videos to for some reason. I'm not sure what's going on with that. I just started on this new platform called Parlor Parlay, uh, Baker Sean sixty seven, and so uh, yeah, I just try to get the message out there. I'm not political in any way, but I'm just trying to, you know, let people know there's a, there's there's different there's an alternate theory, uh, and, and there's a lot of results, and I'm 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 results oriented more than anything rather than dogmatic or theoretical. I just want to see people what, what counts. Well, uh, I always like talking to doctors who are, are challenging the status quo because, like you said, obviously that's not working. So, all right. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Sean Baker, and uh, thank you guys for listening. And we will uh, talk to you guys next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at Dr. Greg at VibrantLifeDC.com. This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk.